you know, it's funny. This topic of, of sex is everywhere in the world. I mean, we, we encounter messages that are that have something connected to sex almost every day or every day. And it's something that many people struggle with. It's something that we talk about a lot in our society. I mean, you can't watch a TV show without it being there for the most part. And yet it's also something that when people know it's going to be talked about in church, then they don't come. So there's, you know, it's this funny thing of this huge big thing that's a part of our lives, and yet kind of this like, oh no, what's going to happen in church today? We have all sorts of, of um, arguments that people will say when, when, they talk, when they think about sexuality and spirituality and talking about the topic of sex in the church. Uh, sometimes people will say, it's none of your business. Like, you stay out of my life. Like, get, this, get that church stuff, get your church rules out, out of it. This is none of your business. Some people will say, Christianity is about freedom. It's not about rules. Jesus came to set us free, so we shouldn't have to have rules about all this stuff. Some people would say, well, uh, you know, there's a hunger. There's this desire, so I need it. I ha- God wants me to, to be fulfilled. He wants me to have a full life. And, and so we tell ourselves that because I have a hunger or desire for something, then uh, that hunger or desire has to be filled. Sometimes people will say, the sexual and the spiritual don't affect each other. Like, I can live a life for Jesus. I can live a faithful Christian life. And, uh, and then, you know, this, the sex part is, is different. But, uh, you know, I'm doing the church thing. Some people would say, as long as there's consent, everything's fine. If everybody's consenting, you know, that's really our only rule. If there's not consent, then you've got a problem. But if there's consent, everything's fine. And some people would say, well, just everybody, everybody does it. Everybody's having sex. This is how it's supposed to be. It's just normal. The thing is, is that when you're a Christian, you don't do things the normal way. You do things God's way. And so I'd like to begin by saying that my, the foundation that I'm coming from is this message in scripture that says sex is designed as a good gift from God to be practiced within the marriage relationship. That, that's the foundation that I'm coming from. But I want to begin with a few disclaimers about this whole thing. Because already I can feel the, the tension in the room. <laughs> Some of you get a little nervous. And, and I just, I just want to say a few things going into this. I recognize this is a loaded subject, is a sensitive subject. So I want to say a few things. First of all, I'm assuming that some of the things that you will hear today as as we read through this passage of scripture are things that some of you don't know. You haven't been taught what the scripture says. You haven't heard it before. And some of this will be new information for some people. And so that's great. I'm glad that you're hearing it. And I hope that you will hear the word of the Lord to you clearly and gently and in the spirit that I believe the Holy Spirit wants you to hear it. There will be others of you who have heard this stuff before. And you'll hear the things that we're going to say today, and you're going to think, I already know all that stuff. I just don't agree with it. I don't like it. And to you, my hope for you would be that the Holy Spirit will speak to you as you need to. And that if there are any places where you are out of sync with God's word, that you will be able, that the Holy Spirit will call you into realignment with him in a, in a new way. And there are others of you who have heard all this before, and not a single thing I'm going to say is going to be new, and some of you are going to be bored. 
And I really hope you will be. I hope there are lots of people who are bored with the sermon today because there are things that you already know, things you've already been taught, and things that you're living by. And I, it, it'd be great if everybody could go away from today saying, yeah, I, I don't need any of this today, and uh, I, I, I know this, and I, I'm doing this, and I mean, ideally, that would be what we would all want. But I recognize that you'll be hearing these things from a, a variety of perspectives. My goal in all of this is to speak clearly and faithfully to scripture, but also gently. There are two other things I want to bring up, and the first is the topic of sexual abuse. I'm not going to go into this today. We are not going to study it, but I do want to acknowledge that given the statistics that we know are out there, many in these services today have, have been in a place of experiencing sexual abuse. And I want to acknowledge that I recognize that reality. And I want to acknowledge a few things. Sexual abuse can happen in a dating relationship. It can happen in a marriage relationship. It can happen among people who are not dating, where there is no romantic relationship, as it often does. And I just want to say to those of you who are coming into today's service. I'm sorry. It shouldn't have happened to you. It was wrong. It was not your fault. And no matter what people have told you, no matter how people have tried to twist the way of thinking, you did not invite it, and it is not your fault. And I want you to also know that healing can happen. And I want you to know that healing is possible and that God can do bigger things than what we think he can. And I hope today that you will hear these words not with any shred of sense of a condemnation, but with a sense of hope for the restoration and the goodness that God wants to bring to you. The other sensitive topic I want to address is the issue of pornography. Statistics show us that many in our services are dealing with or have dealt with pornography. Again, we're, this isn't something we're going to go into today, but I want you to be aware that it is on my mind as we go through the passage. And I want you to know, too, that it is a big deal, that it, it is something that God doesn't want for people. Uh, we, we mentioned, we've mentioned the, the Asbury outpourings and the, the revival that's been happening really around the nation. We've talked a little bit about that over the last few weeks. Dreezy just referenced it a minute ago. One of the things that one of the leaders there said, uh, she was listing off things that God had done, and she said, I can't even tell you the numbers and numbers of, of high school students who have been here who have been crying out to God for deliverance from pornography addictions. She said, it is absolutely everywhere. Parents, do whatever you can to protect your children. Do not have, let phones be in their bedrooms at night. Lock things up. And she said, do whatever you can to take significant measures because it is a really big deal. It is not just a problem for children, it is a problem for adults, it is a problem for young adults, for senior adults, for men and for women. And so I just want you to know, freedom is possible. And God's desire for all of us 
is for something much bigger, much more whole, much more real, much more good than what, what pornography could ever do. So, with those things said and acknowledged, let's open up God's word together. And Holy Spirit, right now, I just acknowledge your presence among us. And pray, Holy Spirit, that in your perfect methods, you would minister to each of us as we need to hear. May we hear not the condemnation of the enemy, but the gentle and beautiful and redemptive conviction of your Holy Spirit, leading us to health and wholeness and new life. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. The Apostle Paul is quoting some of the things that the Corinthians have said. He said, you're saying these things, but let me respond to that. And he, he quotes them and he responds. He quotes them and he responds. And it, he, he, he's quoting them when he says, you say, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Sometimes we say, I can do what I want. None ya. Leave me alone. <laughs> and, and somehow, some, some Christians have gotten this idea that there aren't res moral restrictions on a Christian. We've gotten this idea that Christianity is about freedom. And so it's not about the rules. It's not about the legalism. It's not about that. But, but there, and it's not about legalism. But Paul certainly had definite moral expectations for Christians. He had certain moral expectations for this is how we live, this is how we don't live. And he especially did not accept sexual immorality in the church. Some have said, well, we have, we have all this grace, and so, you know, there's forgiveness, and Jesus forgives us, so let's just live how we want and live under the grace of God. Well, Romans 8 says, should we go on sinning so that we can have more grace and forgiveness? No, we have died to sin. How can we live at it any longer? And so we don't just do what we want. We seek to live within the moral parameters that God establishes because it's for our well-being and our wholeness and our flourishing. Sometimes people get offended by the church. And I'll talk a little bit more broadly than just city life here. But sometimes people say things like, well, the church puts all this on me, and the, the church has all these rules, and I'm just doing my thing, and the church is, my, is getting in my business, and I just w wish they'd stop, stop getting in my business. The church tells me who I shouldn't, who shouldn't have sex with. And I will say, there are times when the church has done this badly. I mean, I've heard stories about um, young women who have gotten pregnant and then are required to come and stand up in front of the congregation and publicly confess, I had sex outside of marriage, and, and then it's this whole big thing. And uh, noticeably absent are any responsibilities for the fathers. And, and there's nothing wrong with public confession of sin. That's, that's a great thing. That's a great thing. But here at City Life, we would never make people do that. <laughs> But here at City Life, we have had people who have said, you know, I want to confess this in publicly because it's part of the, the restoration that God's doing in my life. That's a whole different story. So I'm not saying that churches have acted perfectly in all this stuff, in all this stuff but I will say that churches, Christian churches, have a responsibility to seek to be faithful to communicating God's word. An a w another problem for the church would be to never address sexual immorality 
to just say, well, people are going to do what they're going to do, so, you know, we'll just kind of turn a blind eye. That's not helpful either. In 1 Corinthians 5, in the previous chapter, Paul, uh, he gives a little personality going on here, and he says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. He says, don't worry about the non-Christians. Like, they don't have the same standards. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In, in, in that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or a sister in Christ, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Now, I'm not going to go into the nuances of all of this and the cultural setting in which he was speaking this, but what I want you to hear is a clear conviction of Paul that these sorts of things need to be talked about and that there is a higher standard for people who call themselves Christians. The next part of the verse, when Paul says, I have the right to do anything, he says, but I will not be mastered by anything. This idea of being mastered, he's bringing up this idea of being mastered by sexual desire to the point where sexual desire drives you, where sexual desire is is, is almost like a god to you. It is the thing that uh, the, the problem happens is when sex becomes the god. And when the call of sex competes with the call of god, That competition is where you need to take warning and wise up. And so he says, let's not be mastered by this. In 2 Peter 2.19, we read, a a man or a person is a slave to whatever has mastered him. He says, don't be enslaved to this. And in Genesis 4.7, we read, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. I like this verse because it gives us a picture that we have some autonomy. We have some ability to wrestle back, to fight back, to say, you will not master me, sin. So Paul says, let's not give in to this way of thinking, but let's stand strong. In verse 13 in this passage, it continues, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. It's this picture of indulgence. And we say, I've got a hunger, so it's got to be filled. I really want it badly, so I I have to have it. This hunger, it's, it's part of my identity. It's part of who I am. It's part of me that must be filled. And if I'm going to be true to myself, I have to satisfy that hunger. Church, let me just tell you, we are all born with a series of hungers and desires that are not according to what God wants for us. It's called sin. It's called being under the fall. And just because we have those does not mean that we have to give in to them. 
just because you have a hunger doesn't mean you have to fill it. Just because you have a hunger doesn't mean you have to fill it. Just because you have a hunger doesn't mean you have to fill it. Verse 13b says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. You, you can't live without food or water for very long, but you can, and people have, lived without sex for long periods of time and not died. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I love that verse. His divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. You want to live a godly life? His power has given you everything you need in order to do that. Verse 4. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. City Life, so often when we read a verse like this that talks about we can participate in God's divine nature, we can be made holy, we, we think, oh yes, I want that God, I want that God, but we, we kind of push that whole sexual side of us out of there because it's too complicated and we don't know what to do with it. And in this moment, I want to invite you to bring in some of those thoughts into this verse and recognize his divine power has given everything you need for life and godliness. And he has given you his great and precious promises so that you can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God has such good things for us. Three, three teachings from 1 Corinthians 6. Here's teaching number one. The sexual and spiritual parts of ourselves are connected. The sexual and spiritual parts of ourselves are connected. We sometimes like to separate these because we, we struggle with, with competing desires. And some in, in the Corinthians were, were saying that just like physical acts of eating and drinking didn't affect the spiritual life. You know, we can eat and drink and it doesn't, it doesn't affect my relationship with God. I'm still going to church and all that. And they were also saying that some acts of sexual immorality don't affect the spiritual life. They're separate. But it's not just our spirits that are connected to God. Our bodies are as well. In fact, do you remember when we talked about God breathed in that series a few weeks ago and we talked about how, uh, the, how Adam was formed out of the clay and then the breath of God himself was put into the human and he became a living being. That is, that is the breath of God in us. And similarly, if you are a believer in Jesus, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit dwelling in you. This is an amazing connection that humans have to God. It's incredible. It's not just our spirits that are connected to God. It's our bodies too. Verse 13b says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And I think what we need to get here is that what we do with our sexual bodies matters to God. That Bo the body is meant for godly sexuality. Sex was created by God. It was his idea. It wasn't some warped idea from Satan that then became part of humanity. God invented this idea of, of sex. He ordained it for marriage, for the good of humanity. 
God created the man and the woman, and he, he said you will be one flesh. He said it was good. That's what God intended. And, and then in verse 14, the passage continues, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Now, when Jesus was raised from the dead, when he was resurrected, he was resurrected with a body. It wasn't just his body died, and then his spirit came back to earth, and he was a ghost walking around. They, they thought he was at one point. That's in the Bible story. Someone's like, oh, we think it's a ghost. And he's like, no, I'm not a ghost. Like, touch me. Feel my body. I've got skin. And he says to the disciples, put your hands in my side, and you can feel that I'm, I'm actually a body. His body, he had a bodily resurrection. And when Jesus then ascended into heaven, it wasn't just his spirit that went up into heaven. His body went up into heaven. And the scripture says that just as Jesus was resurrected, so we too will experience a bodily resurrection. The bodies that God created us were good. He designed our bodies on purpose to be, to be good. And those bodies will be resurrected. This, I think, shows us that God values our bodies. He values not just the spiritual parts of us, but the physical parts of us as well. In verse 15, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Your bodies are members of Christ himself. We have this connection with God through his breath that fills us, through his spirit that fills us. The sexual and spiritual parts of ourselves are connected. That takes us to the next section of scripture. It continues in verse 15b. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So let's just take a moment and talk about prostitution, sex workers. City Life is a beautiful church. We're a beautiful community. And, and we've said from the beginning, God put us in this location. He picked that we would be here on Division Avenue in a place that has a good number of sex workers that, that are, are around here, as well as people who, who pay sex workers. And we have had sex workers here at City Life, female, male, transgender. And we've had people at City Life who have hired sex workers. Perhaps we do, perhaps we're both here today. And I hope that we will always be the kind of church in which people always feel welcome and always know they have a place to be in a church home. I hope we will always be that. And I also hope that we will be able to communicate the message, God wants something better for for those paying sex workers, God wants something better for you. God wants something better for all of us. This, and there are many heartbreaking reasons why this even exists in our society. But let's love each other. Let's help each other. Let's say there's a better way. And the point that Paul then makes, he, he talks about this prostitution thing for a minute, but the point that he gets to is he talks about the one flesh that is created between people when the sexual act 
happens. In verse 16, he says, he says, um, it is said the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. Point number two is sex makes the one flesh union in marriage. Whenever you hear talk about marriage being, oh, they're now one flesh, or the two will become one, it's talking about sex. I mean, that's just what it is. And, and it connects us. It's because sex connects people in a deeper way than other things do. So the meaning of one flesh has, uh, has a couple different pictures. It's got this picture of uh, being bonded together like woodwork and glue, like two pieces of glue that are bonded together tightly. They were two individual pieces, but now they're glued tight together. Or in metalworking, when you're welding, you have this piece of metal, this piece of metal, and you weld it together so it's one strong joint. That's what the picture of one flesh is, being united. Because of that, sex is not an activity that people just do and then walk away from it. It's not meant to be something that is just done and then moved on from. It's meant to be an act that creates a bond. That was God's design, that it would create a bond. It's meant to be treated as holy and good. It's meant to have that bond be fostered and developed and strengthened. It's meant to happen only within covenant marriage, practiced and cultivated between married couples. It's the sort of thing, and now I'm speaking to married couples, it's the sort of thing that should be worked on. I mean, sex in your first year of marriage is hopefully going to be pretty different from sex in your 10th or your 20th year of marriage because hopefully you're learning together and growing together and you're going to go through stuff and sometimes it's going to be hard and sometimes it's going to be something that you really just got to figure out and, and difficult. But we are meant to grow in the area with somebody else over a, a long period of time. It takes communication and cooperation and a mutual self-giving love. There is this practice of one flesh. In Genesis chapter 2, we read, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So all of the major theology that we, that we study has its roots in Genesis 1 through 3. That's always a good place to go for, for theological foundations. So here, Genesis 1 through 3 has lots to say about sex. Other stuff in the Bible comes up later, but sex is a really big deal to humanity. And so God defines early on, I gave humanity sex and this is what I want it to look like because this is how it will be so good. So he spells it out there. Then in Matthew, in the New Testament, it has Jesus talking about it. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one. So Jesus here is specifically defining marriage as a one-flesh union marked by sexual difference. He's highlighting the two become one, male and female. There's a union of two bodies. And the interesting thing about this union of the two bodies becoming one flesh is that a new human being may emerge from the union. It's kind of interesting how that works. So sex makes the one-flesh union in marriage, this one flesh that's special and a big deal. The passage continues in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. 
Sex gets highlighted in Genesis 1 through 3 because there's something different about it. There's something deep and unique about it. Most sins do not harm the body in the same way that sexual sins do. And if you have been harmed sexually by another person, you know this truth deeply. This is not just something that we we blow off because there are just deeper and different implications for us than some other sins. It doesn't mean that other things aren't sin. It just means this one hits us deeper. It's meant to be a big deal. That's why it gets Bible time. Verse 19, this is our last section in the passage for today. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Point number three your body is the sacred house of the Holy Spirit. Your body. Last fall, we talked about the the tabernacle. Remember how we had the tabernacle right here in the middle of the sanctuary? We had the tent, and then we talked about how it was the place where God dwelt, and God wanted to be among his people, and he put himself at the center of community. Do you remember all this? And, And how God, it was just all about God coming and putting his presence among the people because God's plan all throughout history has been to be with us. That's what he's been doing. And yet, do you also remember there was, there are these holy parameters around the tabernacle? Like, you couldn't just go up and just go into the tabernacle, right? Like, there are, like, rules. You, only certain people could go into certain parts of the tabernacle at certain times. And, and if you crossed those boundaries, you were crossing into the, the holiness of God, and it wasn't good for them. We had a lot of people kind of sizzle up, and then that was the end of that right there. But we had this message of the deep desire of God to be with his people, and yet the commitment to holiness, that he, he holds both of those in tension. And so the purpose of the tabernacle was, be to, was, was to be this like little mobile picture of God with us and God's presence with us, God dwelling among the people. Well, we get to the New Testament, and we see Jesus in the temple, and Jesus does all the temple stuff, and then Jesus teaches his disciples, actually, I am the new and I'm the greater temple. And we know that when Jesus came, our relationship to the temple changed. We no longer needed the blood sacrifices of the temple that were offered to make us holy and clean. Jesus became our blood sacrifice. And so when we read the passage, we are no longer our own. We were bought at a price. We were bought by the sacrificial death of Jesus. First Peter says it was not with gold or silver or other perishable things by which we were redeemed, but by the precious, unblemished blood of Jesus Christ. It is his blood that covers over us, his blood that covers over all that we have done. It is his blood that covers over not just the, the medium and the, the not-too-bad sins, his blood that covers over all the sins and all the things that we need covering over. It is his blood that is sufficiently adequate to cover over us. And now the Holy Spirit says we, the Christians, are the temple. We now carry around the Shekinah glory of God. We now carry around the presence of God. Now I know some of you are probably sitting here thinking, I am just a pretty dirty temple. 
I am not a good enough temple. I, it's a nice idea, but I really can't stomach the thought of comparing myself as being a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I want to challenge you on that thought for two reasons. The first is that it is unbiblical. This is where you trust God's word. And you say, the Bible tells me I'm this temple. I don't get it. I don't feel it. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me, but I'm choosing to believe it. I want to challenge you to go there. The other thing is you, so many of you believe Jesus to save you from your sin and to take you to heaven someday, but you have not believed that he can forgive where you have been. You will trust him for your eternal salvation, but you have not trusted him to restore and redeem and heal and forgive and make new your sexual life. The power of God is beyond your imagination. You don't get to decide the limits of his power. You don't get to decide the limits of his forgiveness. You don't get to decide that his love is limited for you. He wants you. And he has chosen you, brothers and sisters, to be his temple. That was his goodwill and pleasure to choose you. For those struggling with guilt or shame, as we sang today, he knows your name. He knows your name. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows that if we really understood how bad our stuff was, we would feel worse than what we do. He sees it even worse than we do. And yet God chose to make us believers into his temple. And I imagine, I, I was thinking, about, as I was preparing this message and thinking about someday when we stand before Jesus, we'll stand before his, his throne. They call it the great and terrible day of the Lord when we stand before the judgment of God. Every human will stand before God. And I think there are two major things that we'll be struck by in that moment. I think we'll be struck by how unholy we really are. I mean, any, any shred of unholiness we might feel now I think is only a shadow. And I think like Adam and Eve, our eyes will be opened and we'll be like, oh, I see it, God. And all, all will be revealed <laughs> to us. And I think we will experience the deepest conviction we have ever had. But Adam and Eve's realization led to a, a desperate new beginning with not a lot of hope. But I think for us, when we stand there in the presence of God and experience that kind of deepest conviction we've ever had, we will realize the goodness, the goodness of God and the sufficiency of his salvation 
how the God's purity is available for us to cover over us. And I think we will want, we will want to be cleansed from it. We won't want to have those desires anymore. Those desires, those struggles, those temptations we have won't even be there. We will be free from those things and we will experience the absolute holiness of God. And I think the other thing that we will be overcome by, even with realizing the depths of our stuff and our junk and our pain and our brokenness, I think we'll be overcome by this love of God. By this love of God that says, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. The forgiveness that I have offered you is sufficient to cleanse you. The new life that I have is going to happen now. The depth of my forgiveness is enough. I can truly cleanse you. I have truly made you whole. I have made you right in my sight, and my sight is the only one that matters. And I think in that moment we will truly understand what it really means to be forgiven and made new by God. And I long for that day. I long for that day when we realize both the depth of our lostness and also the depth of God's incredible love and restoration. So, what do we do today? What does is, what is sexual faithfulness look like for us today? I think you need to know there can be a new way to live. I firmly believe there can be healing beyond what you have yet experienced. If you are stuck in pain, I, f- I believe God can do it. I don't know how he will do it. I, I think he can take you on a journey. I think he can do all kinds of healing in all kinds of ways. And, he, and you might have to be courageous with that. But I know, I know that God is a God of healing. I know people, I've heard their stories of how God has redeemed and made new and restored and given wholeness and healing. I know there can be a new way forward. I know that marriages can be healed. I know they can be restored. And it is not going to be beautiful. It will be ugly in the process. But the end result will get there. It can happen. It is possible. I know that God can restore a healthy, godly singleness. I know that God can bring you to a place of sexually, sexual, being sexually faithful to him. Sexual faithfulness for the Christian, for, for married couples, it looks like practicing the sexual relationship within the marriage covenant. For unmarried couples, for single people, it looks like practicing sexual abstinence. God wants our flourishing and our wholeness, and he has all the good for us. We have now entered into this period of, that's called Lent, 40 days leading up to Easter. And I'd like you to be turning your thoughts toward the cross, toward the resurrection, toward the death and resurrection of Jesus in this season. And I found it interesting as I was thinking about Lent this week, Lent often focuses on the body, 
often we talk about fasting during Lent or some sort of discipline or something that we do to train our bodies, some sort of sacrifice on our bodies. And it's appropriate that we do this because when we consider the, the suffering of Jesus, it was the suffering of his body. He was whipped, he was bruised, he was, he was beaten up, he was spat upon. His body received this. And it was his body that died. It was his body that was nailed to a cross. And it was his body that was taken off the cross. And somebody carried that heavy, limp body to a tomb and wrapped it in cloths and buried that body. And it was a body that rose again. I believe that God will resurrect our bodies in the last day. But I also believe for a resurrection of healing in this life for your body. Traditional church practice uh, is, Lent is, we often think of it as kind of a Catholic thing, but it actually began in the early church uh, way before the, the Roman Catholic church as we know it today. Uh, the earliest centuries of Christians would take these 40 days leading up to Easter to discipline their bodies to the Lord to pay attention to our bodies, to fast, to be disciplined, to train our bodies to be submitted to the Lord, to use our physical disciplines to help our spiritual lives connect with God. And I want to challenge you to just be thinking, what might these 40 days look like for you? Might there be a commitment or a sacrifice that God is calling you to in this season? And church, will you commit to sexual faithfulness? Will you commit to hearing from the Holy Spirit and seeking to be faithful to the Holy Spirit? Will you, will you covenant with God for sexual abstinence as appropriate? Will you covenant in sexual connection and marriage as appropriate and as, as is appropriate to your situation that you are in at this season of your life? Will you offer to God your body as a living sacrifice and let him make it holy and acceptable? And maybe more than anything else, will you submit your will to God? Say, not my will, but yours be done. I am not my own. I've been bought at a price. And I belong to you, God, first and foremost. Let's take a moment and just quiet ourselves in God's presence. Worship team, come on up. The worship team will sing just 